0: Heavenly Father, thank you as we gather together, Lord, to worship you, to spend time in your presence with your people, in your house, under your word. We just rest in that promise, Lord, the love of God that surpasses any human love that we may ever have known. Uh, Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you have shown your favor to us and your goodness to us. Wherever there is need here today, Lord, come and meet that need, whether it's a need in the body, a need in the heart, a need in the finances, whatever that may look like. You know, Lord, and you love us. And your word says that my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, bring healing, bring wholeness, bring provision, bring wisdom, bring answers to prayer, Lord, and we will thank you for it as we thank you for your love. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, worship team. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. That's page 3, if you're using the Bible on the pew in front of you. Genesis chapter 2. Are you guys ready for this? I'm not sure if I am. We uh, we're starting a new series today called Scripture, Gender, and Sexuality, and. Uh, I've never taught a whole series on this topic before. I've taught odd sermons here and there. I've slipped it into other sermons on broader topics, but this is my first time uh, diving into this uh, as a a broad sort of conversation. And so uh, we're going to be here for the next number of weeks, and uh, we're going to talk within it about sex a little bit. We're going to be talking about gender, men and women, a little bit. We're going to be talking about marriage a little bit. We're going to be talking about uh, passage like wives, submit to your husbands, and what that means and what that looks like for us. We're going to talk about Christians engaging with the LGBT community a little bit. So we're going to be talking about all of these uh, super fun and not at all controversial topics of conversation uh, as we go through the next several weeks talking about scripture, gender, and sexuality. And all God's people said, yeah. It's not our goal at all. Today we're talking about sex specifically. And it is not our goal to... Uh, make anybody uncomfortable. We're not going to be talking about so much the physical side uh, of the sexual act. If you have questions about the physical side of the sexual act, you go home and you ask your parents about it. All right? That's not our goal here. Uh, our goal is to talk about uh, what does the Bible say, and, and there's no way in one message or even a series we can cover everything the Bible says. But um, remember this, Nick Walenda crossing over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Uh, That's how I felt a bit this week as I was getting this together. Nick Walenda from the famous family, the Walendas, the acrobats. uh, This was three or four years ago. Uh, stretched a cable across the Horseshoe Falls from the American side to the Canadian side and walked across it uh, successfully. Uh, and you can watch it on YouTube, and it's really cool because it's, I mean, it's, it's death-defying. Uh, and at the same time, as he's walking, uh, he's just praising Jesus the whole way. Do you remember that, if you saw it? Thank you, Jesus, just the whole way across. And, uh, and he has a microphone on, and so he's commenting. He's like, wow, the mist makes this tightrope real slippery uh, as he's going across. And so you kind of heard his whole inner monologue as he went, uh, Uh, But I felt that way a little bit as we tackle this topic of sex because uh, it is a bit of a tightrope as a preacher, and uh, I've been a preacher for 15 years. I don't get nervous anymore when I preach. I've just done it enough, but I was nervous coming in this week. And uh, that's because on a topic like this, uh, especially in a church context, there there can be a wide range of, uh, of how people feel about it, between some of you who wish that I would stop talking right now and go on to something else, uh, between those of you who are more eager to hear about it. But in a topic like this, it's tricky because there is also a whole lot of other factors at play. Uh, and so today we're going to talk about What ideal God lays down for how sex is supposed to work? Uh, What has he ordained? Uh, And when you do that, just by definition, you draw a bit of a line in the sand and you say anything that doesn't fit in that, uh, we would call sin. And there are people in this room who have sexual sin in their past. There are people in this room who are maybe struggling with sexual sin right now. There are people in this room who have been sinned against sexually. Uh, And then there's a whole range of issues that can go with any of these things. And so so it's tricky. And I've tried very hard to be sensitive to all these different things. Uh, I can't possibly cover every situation and everything. And so uh, we're happy to keep this conversation going uh, in the bulletin there. Uh, There's an email address that we've started up. Questions at Meadowbrook.ca, and if you have a question i don 't cover today i would love to continue the conversation with you uh, but what, we're, what our goal is today is not to cover every situation. Uh, what our goal is today just as we kick off the series is to look to the scripture and look at what does God lay down as the ideal uh, for the sexual act for human beings. And we're in a bit of a losing conversation with this. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series was because uh, we get talked to about sex a lot, right? Not in the church. In the church, it's almost never. Uh, but in our lives, in every TV show, in every movie, in music, our kids on the playground, in everything, uh, this conversation about sex is happening, and it's happening in the newspapers, it's happening on the internet. Uh, this is going on. And in response, typically, the church's response is, la, 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 la. It's awkward to talk about, so we won't talk about. And so I wanted to kind of push back against that mentality and say, you know what? If our culture is talking about it a lot, if our schools are talking about it a lot, if the internet is talking about it a lot, if the news organizations are talking about it a lot, we need to talk about it at least sometimes because we need to go to God's Word. And, and part of the heart of this is... So that we could all learn, but especially for those of you who are parents, we want to give you tools and scriptures and and metaphors and things that you can use to talk to your kids about this. So again, we're not trying to make anyone uncomfortable. Uh, We're trying to help as best we can by going to God's word. The message of the culture when it comes to sex uh, often is an attitude of, well, it's just, it's no big deal right? It's just physical. Uh, It's just not a big deal. It doesn't matter if we do it or not. That's up to every individual person. And and that is true. It is up to every individual person. Even God would say it's up to you to do what you do with your life. Ultimately, every one of us is accountable to him. And so in that sense, I would agree with that last point that yes, every person has to decide on their own. Uh, And yet for those of us who follow after Jesus, for us, of course, what the scripture says is going to be crucially important to how we decide that. And so the, the attitude of the culture, and, and as I talk to you know, friends of mine who aren't Christians, family members who aren't Christians, certainly, again, as we see in TVs and movies and different things, there is an attitude towards sex that it's, it's no big deal, just a physical thing, and if it feels good, do it, and as long as you're grown-ups and you're both consenting, by all means, do what you want to do, and there's just kind of a shrug of a shoulder of mind your business and, and do what you feel like doing. At the same time... Even in the, the non-Christian culture, uh, I think there's a bit of a mixed message that gets sent. Because even for those who aren't trying to follow after the Bible, uh, in many ways, sex is still a very big deal. Even outside the church, a person's first time is a very big deal, right? There's a, it's a special turning point in life. There is a growing up involved. Even if you're not a Christian, everyone remembers their first time. Even if you're not a Christian, there's an understanding that if we're married and you go outside the bounds of marriage with another person, that's grounds to end that marriage, right? Even if you're not a Christian, there's an understanding that that when you're in a monogamous relationship, sex stays in that relationship. And if you stray to sex outside that relationship, that's grounds for divorce. That's grounds to break up. Even outside the church, even for those who are not Christians and following Scripture, there's an understanding that if you ever force yourself on somebody, you go to jail for a long time, There's an understanding in the culture that if you ever cross the line with a minor, you go to jail for a long time. So even though there might be a kind of attitude of, eh, it's no big deal, at the same time, I think even the culture knows deep down that it is a big deal. That there is something about sex that is different. Than other human interactions that we do. There is something about it that is more intimate. There is something about it that is more special. And so we as Christians would kind of push back against this idea that says it's no big deal and say, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's no big deal except in all of these ways where it's a really big deal. It's either a a big deal or it's not. And so we would say, according to Scripture, yeah, it is a big deal. It's not just physical, it's not just if it feels good, do it. Uh, We would say it is a big deal. And so as we get ready to look at our text, again, one of the things we're wanting to do, parents, is give you some stuff that you can talk to your kids about. And, and listen, I know that's an awkward conversation. Like, that's, that's not ever a pleasant thing. Uh, when we had Kaylee, we were pregnant with Kaylee, we found out it was a girl, and we started to get ready for a girl and paint things pink and buy girl clothes, and we were doing that, and one day I went, hey, guess what? Sarah, you got to do the sex talk, ha! That's mom's job when it's a girl. And then we had Matthew, my son, and I went, all right, my turn. I get to do that at some point. But we want to give you, parents, some things that you can talk about and some scriptures you can use and some, some, again, metaphors and things that you can use. Because I know it's not pleasant, but it shocks me how many Christians I talk to who say, my parents never talked to me about sex, ever. Like, they, maybe they gave me a book and we never talked about it. It was too uncomfortable. Or some didn't even get a book. Sarah and I know a couple where the, this, they were an immigrant couple, so they had some cultural things that were a bit different, but, uh, but when the girl was coming of age, her mom came to her and she told her about a woman's cycle, she told her about that part, and then when the daughter had some other questions, she said, your husband will tell you about that on your wedding night. Well, Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's going to be quite a wedding night if you're learning that for the first time in that, in that context. And... And really, the heart of it is this, parents, I know it can be uncomfortable, I know it can be unpleasant, but your kids are going to get a sex talk whether you give it to them or not, right? Someone's going to send a message, someone's going to talk to them about it. And it's shocking. Our daughter Kaylee started school, this wasn't a sex talk, but she's just started junior kindergarten, and we were home one day, and we were watching a Disney movie, and the, the prince and princess kiss, and Kaylee turns to me and says, when they kiss, they're kissing with tongues, daddy. To be absolutely clear, I did not teach her that. (laughs) I said, where did that come from? And she went, someone at school. And I went, oh, who at school has an older brother who is telling some things to their younger, right? Like, either way, your kids are getting a sex talk. Either way, information is coming. So as unpleasant and uncomfortable as I'm sure it is for everybody... Our job as parents is not that we have to talk about it all the time, but we have to sow good seed. We have to lay a good foundation so that when other things come against them, they can stand strong in what they believe. And that's what we want to give to you. So with that, let's get into our text. We're in Genesis chapter 2. We're going right back to the beginning of time. Genesis 2, we're starting in verse 19. God is in the process of creating everything for the first time. He's created Adam. He has not yet created Eve. Verse 19, now the Lord God, or sorry, 18, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The word woman means from a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we'll come back to this a few times throughout. But so very beginning of time, there is no sin in the world yet. This is creation as it was meant to be. This is humanity as it was meant to be. This is the most perfect the world has ever been. This is the most perfect people have ever been. We have not yet walked away from God. We have not yet said, I'll do this my own way. And so when we want to know, just today, when we want to know how we're supposed to function, what are we ideally, how did God create us to be, we can go back to the garden. We go back to the beginning. Before sin entered the world, how were we designed? To react? How are we designed to interact? How are we designed to walk with God? We don't look at the world around us and try to guess. We go back to perfection. We go back to Eden and we say, this is the standard that God set in God's perfect dream world. This is how it's supposed to work. Now we've ruined that because we've chosen sin, but Before sin enters the world, this is our ideal, okay? And this is God's ideal. So if we want to know how things are supposed to be, ever, we either go back to Eden or we go to the end of Revelation and other passages like that that talk about when Jesus returns, what's it going to be like. Those are our kind of two pictures. Before sin entered the world and after sin is defeated forever for good. And those are the things that we're shooting for. We are looking for that as our ideal that we are looking to live up to. And so we have this story, God creates Adam. Adam is involved, sort of, in creation. God does all the work. Adam gets to pick the names. The scripture says the Lord looked at Adam and said, this isn't good. This isn't good for a man to be by himself. And of all the animals that were created, none of them was an appropriate partner for him to to live life together and to to do life together and to have an intimate relationship with. It just didn't fit. And so God creates woman and puts woman with Adam. And there's this little teaching, really, on marriage, and it's also a little teaching on sex. And we quote this at weddings, that that is why, verse 24, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, he leaves his family of birth, he starts a new family, he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so there's this picture that Adam was not enough on his own. So out of Adam, God creates Eve and two separate people, but reunited back together through marriage and really through sex. This is the first relationship in all of creation. It is a marriage relationship and it's a sexual relationship. Because in the marriage relationship, sex becomes a part of it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He'll leave his family of birth. He'll be united to his wife. Not his girlfriend, not his fiance, not a hookup. He will be united to his wife. And as he's united to his wife, he and his wife will become one flesh. It's the first standard that God lays down for humanity. And there's a sexual boundary there. That in God's ideal, perfect creation, a man and a woman would come together in marriage. And as they come together in marriage, they would come together in sex. And the two would become one. And there's lots of other things the scripture does say about sex, but I wanted to go right back to the beginning. Uh, This is God's ideal that he lays down. A man would be united to his wife. And I have searched the scriptures, and I have gone to conferences, and I have written papers, and I've been in academic settings where this has been debated. And as I have done all of those things, I have looked to see, is there any other sexual relationship in scripture that is endorsed by God? And I can't find a single one. This is the one. This is the context that God has given. A man and a woman come together in marriage, and as they come together in marriage, then the two become one flesh. This is what God lays down. How are we doing so far? All right. There's a book uh, Mark Driscoll wrote with his wife called Real Marriage, The Truth About Sex, Friendship, and Life Together. Uh, Mark Driscoll, is uh, he's a great Bible teacher. He's a bit of an abrasive guy. Uh, he got into some trouble uh, with his church. He was in a big megachurch in the States, and some attitude and unteachability uh, caused him to get into trouble. Some people have thrown out all of his work because of that for some reason. Uh, I think he's a great teacher with a bit of an edge. So if you want to read this book, just fair warning, it's good teaching with a bit of an edge. And so Mark and his wife Grace wrote this together. Uh, he has a very thorough understanding of God's Word. It's a little bit graphic. Uh, he gets into specifics about some things, uh, but it's really solid Bible teaching. So just fair warning if you want to go there. The reason I'm bringing it up is one of the things I liked a lot about this book is he basically says there's three ways that we look at sex, uh, and especially maybe in the church. There's three ways that we choose to kind of tackle it. Uh, either sex as God Sex as gross or sex as gift? And he unpacks each of those a little bit. And so um, as we talk about each one, I just want to touch on them. Sex as God, not meaning replacing God, but uh, as an idol in our lives, as something that takes a position uh, in our lives that is, that is too much, that is too big. Uh, it's certainly, I think, safe to say that's probably where our culture leans of the three. Uh, I have friends who aren't Christians, and their whole life is, uh, I got to get to the bar on the weekend because I got to try and find a girl to bring home with me. Uh, and even the ones who aren't interested in the casual hookups, a lot of them will just go from, you know, maybe long-term sexual relationship to long-term sexual relationship. They're not getting married, but they just need that in their lives. When I first became a Christian, I had a friend, uh, and he said, I don't understand this Jesus thing. Let's talk about it. Let's go for lunch. And I went, okay, awesome. That's, hey, an invitation to talk about Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't get any easier than that. And so we sat down at lunch together. And he says, so tell me about this Jesus. And I'm like bursting as a new Christian, right? Wow, the door just, I didn't even have to try. All right, I am going to preach the gospel. He's going to get saved right here in the McDonald's right now. And so I started to tell, and I didn't know a lot at that point. I was still pretty new, but I just started to tell a bit of my story and how I had met Jesus and what that meant for me. And he cut me off about two minutes in. He said, just tell me this. He says, so Christianity, he's like, that's the one where I don't get drunk and I don't have sex until marriage, right? And I said, well, that's a hard, yeah, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more. I said, it's about Jesus. It's about." He's like, no, no, just to be clear, if I become a Christian, I can't get drunk and I can't have sex until marriage. And I said, well, okay, there are boundaries, yes, but the reason, no, 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 Christianity is not the religion for me. He said, I cannot imagine giving up my drunken parties with my friends. I can't imagine giving up girls until I'm married. He's like, it's just not for me. I just can't do it. So when we talk about sex as God, that's a little bit of what we're talking about. It's exalting it, uh, you know, far beyond uh, where it should be and and putting it in a place that it shouldn't be in our lives, where we just lift it up so much, it becomes a driving force to everything. And again, if we look at the culture, we look at movies, we look at TV, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of that uh, going on in our culture. Christians maybe don't go that way as much. We probably go a little more this way. Sex is gross. And, uh, and because we don't like to talk about it, we don't often. And so I don't know that anyone would actually say, I think it's gross. But I think sometimes that's the message we share when we won't talk about it. So Sarah and I have a friend. It was the friend whose mom you know, said, your husband will tell you on your wedding night. And so as she got ready to get married, she met a man, and she fell in love, and they they both loved Jesus, but as she got closer to the wedding night, she she was not looking forward to it at all. It was a scary thing, and she didn't know what to expect, of course, because no one had ever talked to her about it, and she has kind of heard things and picked up things from other people, but uh, but she started to get very, very nervous, uh, like she wasn't ready. And so we might not actually say it's gross, but I think, Uh, The church, over 2,000 years of church history, has not done well on this topic. It was very early after Jesus left that some of the major teachers, the major uh, church fathers and theologians began to teach some things about sex that were a bit off base biblically uh, and really stuck in the culture of church, I think. So St. Augustine uh, taught, he read in the Bible about sexual immorality, Uh, he read in the Bible where Jesus said, don't lust after a woman, and he went, well, what if I'm lusting after my wife? And, and missing kind of the good things that Bible says about sex. And so Augustine issued a decree that married couples should not ever have sex if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. And a little later, a theologian arose named Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, and uh, he looked at Augustine's thing from a few centuries before, and, well, that's a bit extreme. Like, we've got we to gotta make babies at least, right? We've got to raise uh, children. God's told us to be fruitful and multiply. So he came up with this idea that Married couples can have sex, but only for procreation. That's the only purpose. Anything else is sinful. And Pope Gregory arose a few centuries later and he said, Well, that might be a bit extreme. So he goes, How about this? Sex is not sinful. And everybody went, Okay, well, thank you. Sex in marriage is not sinful. Good. And then he said, Having pleasure during sex is sinful. So don't do that part. Somehow. And so if we're confused as a church, if we are struggling as Christians, in a way we come by it honestly. Uh, You know, well-meaning teachers over 2,000 years of church history have taught different things, and some of those things have really stuck, uh, even if we don't actually believe them anymore. But I think there has been a fear when it comes to sex that, man, if we make it sound too good, people are going to want to do it, and they might not wait until marriage. So we can't make it sound too good because it'll just be too tempting for those who aren't married. And so we just either won't talk about it at all, or if we do, we're just going to talk about the sin side of it a lot so everyone's really clear what sexual sin is. And the church has this terrible track record of taking sexual sins and exalting them as worse than other sins. So we'll nail the sexual immorality stuff. We'll never talk about the good side. I have a friend who was a pastor and he performed a lot of weddings and he said, oh Chris, like these, I see these kids and they've, they met in youth group and they fell in love and they've, they're getting married at 21 or 22 and like they've never kissed another person and it's so beautiful and it's so pure and they wait until marriage and they do everything that God has called them to do and then they get married and they have these terrible sex lives because they've just been told no, 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 it's bad, bad, bad 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 wrong 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 gross 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 and then they get married and it's okay have fun good luck and he's like they can't just turn that switch off and i can tell you i've been a pastor for 15 years counseling uh this is true like and especially for women that it, it just seems that that the weight of what we have put on people you don't just switch that off when you get married And there's still, even in married couples, can be shame and can be discomfort and can be, we don't talk about that. And so that's the second way we can look at it. The third way, which we will present this morning as the right way and the best way, is sex as a gift. And it was actually the Puritans in the church who turned this around. The Puritans are the pilgrims, and they sort of have this reputation of being really uptight and kind of, you know, back in the past and very legalistic and judgmental. But they were the ones who began to read the scripture and say, you know, scripture also celebrates sex in the right context. Uh, Scripture encourages sex in the right context. Scripture doesn't just condemn it and say it's gross, and it doesn't exalt it, but it talks about it in its proper place. And so they began to kind of shift things on that. There's a a book in the middle of the Bible called The Song of Songs. Have you read it? (laughs) Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon sometimes. And it's a love story. It's a story of a man and a woman, and they are in love, and the, the man is pursuing her. Uh, and they are uh, either to be married, or it's, it's not totally clear. Uh, they either are, are about to get married, or, or maybe not just yet. Um, but there's this pursuit going on between the man and the woman. And part of the conversation in there uh, is the language of desire. It's the language of, I'm attracted to you. I, you're beautiful. Uh, it is the language of, I want you. I desire you. And it's pretty racy for scripture. I mean, it's tame, but compared to the rest of scripture, it's, it's, it's very uh, romantic and at times even moving into sexual language. This is going to be everyone's devotional reading this week, I have a feeling. <laughs> everyone's going to, what does it say? What? I'm going to dive into that. Um, but in this, in this kind of back and forth... Uh, you know, over, again, 2,000 years of church history, it made church people a little bit uncomfortable. And so the theologians looked at it and said, well, obviously the Bible can't be talking about sex. So it's a metaphor for Jesus and the church. Uh, It is a great metaphor of the bridegroom pursuing his bride. And that's why it's there. It's not sexual at all. It's just a metaphor for Jesus and the church. And, you know, you read it and you go, well, I guess that could be so, but I don't think so. And it's not that, you know, I mean, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus uses that metaphor of he's the groom and we are his bride. And so it's not that you can't pull out some truths there, but I'm just going to throw out there, I think Song of Songs is in there to tell us that sex is a gift of God. And that desire is normal, and this is part of who we are. And yet, even through this story, which again is a little bit racy and very romantic, and it's about two people in love and their pursuit of each other, at the same time, there is this refrain throughout. It shows up several times throughout the book. Uh, Here's one version in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, "'But daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires.'" And so there's this man who desires this woman and there's this woman who desires this man and they're in this pursuit with each other and it's romantic and they're moving towards consummating the relationship and over and over this refrain pops up, don't wake up love yet. The message being, just just wait for it. Wait for it. Wait till you're married. Don't arouse that until the right time, until the right context so the pursuit is natural, the desire even is natural, but don't wake that love up yet. You're not married yet. Just wait. And that shows up over and over again. And that's just such a beautiful picture of, of the gift that this is, that God has given to us. Because once we're given a gift, it is ours, it is ours to be enjoyed, it should be enjoyed, but we don't open gifts until the right time, right? It's April, we're not open Christmas gifts right now, right? We'll open our Christmas gifts in December, It's too early to open that gift right now. So if we can understand sex as the gift that it is, that God has given, I mean, how silly when the Pope says, have sex, but no pleasure allowed, right? It begs the question, why is it pleasurable then, right? Like, how do you pull that off? It's like, no, it is a gift that is meant to be enjoyed. It is a gift that is given to us by God. It is a gift that a husband and wife share with each other. But like most gifts, it is a gift that needs to be opened up at the right time and in the right context, and if we can understand that, like I love my kids at Christmas time right now because they are now finally old enough that they sense that it's coming. They sense the anticipation. And so but they also know that part of the anticipation is you wait for the right moment. And if we can grab on, if we can avoid looking at sex as God, as an idol, if we can avoid looking at sex as gross or something that we ignore, if we can acknowledge that it is a gift, and yet it's a gift that waits until the right time to open that gift. And then once it's opened, you can enjoy it together. This is the way that we would throw it there. This is the the biblical way, the right way to look at sex. So going back to our text, verse 24, For this reason, that is why... A man leaves his mother and father. He leaves his family of origin. He is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There is this oneness, and scripture talks about this throughout this oneness. That happens and as it starts from the beginning and as, as is confirmed through scripture over and over and over and over again, we would say the place that sex is expressed is in the covenant of marriage. In God's ideal, this is what He has laid down, that within the covenant of marriage the man's united to his wife, and then the two will become one. And there is something about that that is crucial for us to understand. So we would say anything outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman coming together as husband and wife, anything outside of that falls outside of God's ideal. Why is that the case? Well, we talked a bit about uh, the world's attitude of sex is no big deal. And yet, again, I think deep down everyone knows it is more... Right? It is more than kissing. It is more than holding hands. There is something much more intimate. There's something much deeper going on. And just to be clear, when I think when when we hear people say it's no big deal, it's just physical, I mean, I, I believe that they mean that. I think they're very sincere when they say that. But scripture talks about in Timothy that uh, you know, when we sin, if we sin enough, our consciences will become seared, as with a hot iron. Right? You sear your meat. Tss, tss, and says, that can happen to our conscience. So if I sin today, I can feel uh, the conviction of that. And if I sin tomorrow, I can feel the conviction, but maybe a little less. And if I sin in that same way every day for four months, by the end of the four months, that sin is just not going to feel like sin anymore. My conscience can get seared. I can get dull uh, to that. And so I think when people say it's no big deal, I, I, again, I believe they're sincere, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right or that that's a good thing. And so if we understand that with the act of sex, there is something, of course, physical that's going on, but something very intimately physical, right? Deeper than a kiss, deeper than holding hands, deeper than a hug. There's something very intimate. It's actually the most intimate you can be with another human being. It is the most vulnerable you can be with another human being to be naked and to be that, that intimate, where, where two become one, where two bodies actually become so close to each other that it's not two separate bodies anymore, but they've united as one. It's incredibly vulnerable. It's incredibly intimate. We know that some people can shut this off and some people feel it stronger than others, but there is an emotional aspect to it where hearts come together. And we would say from scripture, there is a spiritual aspect to it, where there is a spiritual union that goes on. And it all comes to this idea of two becoming one, two separate human beings uniting as one physically, uniting their hearts together emotionally, uniting their spirits together spiritually, uniting their beings together. It's a big deal. And because of that, because there is such vulnerability required, because there is such intimacy that we're called to, God tells us to wait. Bruxy Cavey puts it this way. He says, sex is like glue. It sticks two separate things together into a new thing. If you take two pieces of paper and you put glue on them and you stick them together, that's now one piece of paper. That's not coming apart without a lot of tearing and without a lot of damage done to both pieces of paper on the way. So sex is like glue. It it bonds two people together. It unites two people together as one. And that happens whether they've made the marriage commitment or not. It's interesting as it talks about a man will be united with his wife and then the two will become one. It's not the marriage commitment that makes them one. It's the sexual act that makes them one. The marriage commitment is the first step. And then the sexual act is what unites them into one person. And so it's funny to, to think about this. If sex is like glue and it makes two people one, like you notice, like why do married couples start to look the same and act the same and talk the same after a while, right? It's not just because they're spending time together. I spend lots of time with Xavier, but we don't look and talk the same. <laughs> I spend as much time with my work colleagues, right? Eight hours a day here, eight hours a day at home, eight hours sleeping, right? Like we spend as much time with our work people. We don't start to to look the same and talk the same and act the same in the same way as we do with our spouse. Well, why? Because with our spouse, we have become one with them. We have united physically, emotionally, spiritually. Two different people have glued together together. And become one. And because of that, because of that unity, because that happens, God says, I want marriage to be the place where that happens. I want to be marriage to be the place where that level of unity happens. Because in marriage, we make a vow where we say, I'm not going anywhere. And we know that doesn't always work out in our, in our fallen human sinfulness. But in our brokenness, it doesn't always work. But Uh, In marriage, I assume everybody pretty much on their wedding day, when they gave their vow, they meant their vow, which says, I am with you for life. I'm not going anywhere, right? I'm committed to you till death. I'm not bailing. And so now that we have made that commitment, right? Now that we have said, I'm not going anywhere. Now that we have said, I am vowing before God that I will commit to you for life. Now, this relationship where that vow has been made is a safe place to get that vulnerable and to get that intimate and to open yourself up in that way to that person to become one with that person. Because the vow says, I'm committed to you no matter what and I'm not going anywhere. And since I've made that commitment to you and you've made that commitment to me, now this relationship is the safe place for us to become one. Because if we come one and we don't have that commitment and we don't stick with that relationship, two become one. And when that ends, there's a ripping and a tearing as two have become one and that gets separated into two again. And there's consequences to that. There is hurt to that. I think some people don't even understand the fullness of it. Sarah and I were watching a documentary about uh, lots of different things. It was social issues in Canada. And one of the things it talked about was prostitution in Toronto. And it said, they were talking to people, it said, every prostitute is a drug addict. Everyone. Because that's how you get through that day after day. Right? Like, we don't, there's, there's stuff going on, again, physically, of course, in the sect act, but the emotional, the spiritual, like, two have become one, even if it's casual, two have become one. And when two have become one that rip apart into two again, there's damage that gets done. And again, I don't think we always even understand that. But that's why God says, this is what I want, the marriage covenant, the marriage commitment. And it's easy to look at God's commandments. My friend who said, I don't want to be a Christian because I can't have girls until I'm married. uh, You know, that reflects this idea that, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, it's going to be less fun. Right? God's commandments are there, and they take some of the joy out of life. But if you're a parent, and you can look at God as a parent, as a father, you say, man, any rule I put down for my kids is only to keep them safe. Right? It's only to keep them safe. I'm happy for them to have all the joy that they can have, but I also say, don't play in the street, because that's dangerous for you. And so when God lays down a boundary on sex, it's not to limit anything. It is to keep us safe, to keep two from becoming one, ripping apart into two again. And so he says, in the marriage covenant, in that commitment, we say, I am not going anywhere. I am with you through all of it. And now that we are committed to each other, this is a safe place for us now. Adam and Eve were naked at the beginning. They felt no shame. This is a safe place for that. This is a safe place for our bodies to become one. It's a safe place for our hearts to become one. It's a safe place for our spirits to become one. And to say I will have sex before that commitment is made, uh, I, it's natural. I think there is a sex drive in us, whether we're Christian or not. There is something in there. Uh, at the same time, it's pretty much the definition of I, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want, I want to have all the joy and all the pleasure and all the intimacy, but I don't want to actually make the commitment. But interestingly, again, the commitment is crucial. The commitment has to come first, but it's the two coming together in the sex act, that's the thing that actually unites them. So the marriage commitment is what makes it a safe place because we vow to each other for life. But that unity comes, whether it's a person with their spouse or whether it's a person with a girlfriend or whether it's a person with a hookup, whether it's a person with a prostitute, to become one regardless And so when we look to the very beginning, when we look to Adam and Eve, when we look to how did God set this up to function in his best understanding as God, who knows all, how did God want this to work? God wanted this to work, that a husband and wife would make the commitment and come together in marriage, and then from that commitment, two would become one physically. And that's why we wait till our wedding night in in an ideal situation it's one of those things that also then kind of cycles around because the the marriage commitment is what makes sex safe in every way. But then once you're married, sex becomes the glue that bonds you together. When sex leaves a marriage, that's a big problem. And so sex becomes the thing that continually re-glues the couple back together, re-establishes their oneness, reconnects them to each other emotionally and physically and spiritually. So it becomes the gift of God to keep a marriage strong with lots of other things, but it becomes a crucial part of every marriage. It becomes the glue, the oneness that holds it all together. So there are good reasons to wait And if you're married, there's good reasons not to let that leave your marriage. And we're going to talk a bit more about those things in the weeks to come. Um, We're also going to talk next week about, uh, because I know this happens to many, uh, what happens when we have sinned sexually or been sinned against sexually. Uh, we'll get a bit more into that next week, okay? So today's job was just to cover the standard, the boundaries that God has put into place. Uh, if you have questions about anything, again, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. I uh, would love to keep this conversation going. One of the things I think we're going to do with this series is, uh, as questions start to come in, and we did have questions come in last week, even from last week's teaching, as questions start to come in, I think I, we're going to take one Sunday just to deal with some of the questions that are coming in because, again, I can't cover everything, but I'd love to hear from you. Uh, what do you want to know and, and what are some things that I've missed in the teaching here? So, come on up, Morgan. We're going to pray in just a moment and we will close off our day. Um, sex is like glue. It's a great metaphor. It's a great picture. Right? It pray brings two separate things together and it makes them one new thing. And, and that is scripturally what the Bible says about sex. And yet God ultimately, again, in the perfect setting, in the perfect world, he has created us to be a a one-person glue partner, ideally. And so if you're single, there's good reason to wait. If you're dating, there's good reason to wait. If you're engaged, there's good reason to wait. If you're married, there's good reason to, to enjoy the glue, if I can say it that way. It's good for your marriage. Next week, we'll talk about... Well, what happens if we haven't done that already? What happens if we've already fallen short? And we'll, we'll get to that. But part of my job is to, as the pastor is to, to share with you what the Bible says about boundaries at times and then to call you back to that. So even if you have sinned or maybe even you're sinning right now, I still, I call you back to the garden. I call you back to the way God set this up. There's nothing that can't be forgiven. There's nothing that can't be redeemed. But part of repenting, first step is acknowledging our sin. Second step is apologizing to God for our sin. But then the third step is turning away from our sin and making the effort to live His way. So we were created to be a one person man, a one person woman. And next week we'll get into what happens when we haven't done that. Um, I want to pray for this series, by the way, we're not going to do a closing song. For the main reason of we couldn't think of how to do a song after a talk like that without it feeling just kind of weird. Uh, and so trying to figure out what would be appropriate in a response song to a teaching like this. And and the rest of the series uh, maybe won't be as as difficult as this particular one today was to navigate through. But uh, either way, we're just going to close in prayer. So I'll ask you to stand to your feet as we pray together today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and As your people, Lord, we acknowledge that your commandments, your boundaries uh, are not here to rob us of anything. Your commandments and your boundaries are here to keep us safe from what you know can happen when we cross the line in certain ways. And so forgive us, Lord, for ever looking at you as anything other than that. That your difficult commands are not always uh, difficult. They are just hard in our humanness to grab onto because in our humanness, we sometimes want what you don't want us to have. And so we acknowledge that your commands are good, not always easy, but they are good and that you are good and that you want what's good for us because you're our father and because you love us. And so, uh, Lord, we just uh, recommit ourselves to follow after your way. And where there is sin, we ask for your forgiveness. And where there is sin, we ask for your help to move past it and to return to the garden, return to your ways. And where we have been sinned against, Lord, we ask for healing and we ask for wholeness, we ask for grace in all of it. And we pray, Lord, that we will be people who walk in the way that you would have us walk. And that we would walk in understanding wherever we can, and even if we don't fully understand, we would trust in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless all of us in this area if we are single, if we are waiting, if we are dating but holding off, if we are celibate, whatever that might look like, if we are married, Lord, this word will mean something different to each of us, but I just ask for an abundance of grace, an abundance of your blessing, an abundance of wisdom, an abundance of conviction, an abundance of devotion and commitment to follow after your ways, Lord as we desire to be like you, Jesus, and as we desire to obey your word and to live as you would have us to live. Bless us, Father, as we do so. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a rough one. Thanks for sticking with me. God bless you, and we will see you soon.